I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. Joining me this morning is Jen Epstein, writer and activist and author of Don't Get Too Excited. It's just about a pair of shoes and other laments from my life. Jen Epstein was born a warrior. As a child, she worried her youth her uvula would break off and she would swallow it and choke to death. Then she worried high voltage wires would get her. Eventually she was diagnosed with learning disabilities and later obsessive compulsive disorder. Whether pondering motherhood or refusing to drink ice water in Costa Rica, Epstein, with her self-deprecating humor, exposes her inner demons with stories that are sometimes heartbreaking and always deeply personal tapping into the minutiae of her life with distinctive style and themes of universal appeal. Epstein has her M.A. in Media Studies from the New School and completed a Documentary Arts Fellowship at Union Docks in Brooklyn, New York, while working for the notification media company Discovery. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you here, Jen. Thank you, Catherine. So, so, thank you so much for having me. This is such a pleasure. All right, so your book, it, Don't Get Too Excited, uh, but we want to get excited for the show today because I think, you know, you're talking about <laughs> there's a lot of humor in your book. I think a lot of a uh, lot of us obviously can identify with all the stuff you're talking about, especially this obsessive-compulsive disorder thing because I don't think you have to be diagnosed necessarily as a true obsessive-compulsive disorder personality, but this OCD thing, and it, particularly in our culture right now, our um, is so prevalent, you know, that anxiety, that nervousness. So let's, I guess the first question is, why, you know, why did you decide to write the book and really expose yourself to all of these demons that you've, that you describe? Well, um, I really wanted to normalize obsessive compulsive disorder as much as possible for people to, as you said, um, really that it is more common than people think it is. Um, and, you know, I wanted to reduce some of the stigma that's, that's attached to it. Um, and, you know, basically to say, you know, by taking a humorous take on things that, look, if I can survive this, anybody can. <laughs> so, yeah, that was, that was really the, the goal was, was to expose my inner demons to, to help other people. And, you know, for, for people who may feel like, um, they have some of the symptoms associated with it or that they have, you know, uh, an anxiety, uh, extreme anxiety, um, you know, to just really feel more comfortable um, turning to treatment, um, that, it, that, it, that it really is more common and that there's no reason to stay in the shadows. Yeah, I think that's true. And I, one of the things I guess I didn't mention, but you were raised by two mental health professionals. So here you have, I'm assuming, mom and dad or mom and mom or dad and dad, whoever it was, but two yeah. mental health professionals. And here you're still, you've got all this OCD happening. So tell us your story. Give it, you know, we don't want to give away the book, but how did it begin? When did you start, especially living in... I'm making assumptions about having two parents who are either what social workers, psychologists. Um, how did you kind of get to be the way you are? So, when did I start worrying at birth? When did you start worrying? <laughs> but, yes. And what? Yeah. yeah. What age? Literally when I came out of the womb. Okay. Um, day one. <laughs> yeah, day one. But um, 
Yeah, I mean, there were definitely telltale signs when, when I was uh, much younger. Um, so one of my, I, I, it's one of the, the conditions with, with OCD is that they're, you know, irrational fears. It's always associated with irrational fears. And even at, at a very early age, I, I, I um, experienced several irrational fears, one of those being obviously about my uvula falling off. <laughs> um, and, um, you know, another was electric fences. We didn't live anywhere near an electric fence, but I was petrified of them. I was sure that I was going to be meet my untimely fate by electric shock. So, but there was, there, there was no reason for it. And, you know, it was something that would keep me up at night. Um, how did your parents and, you handle know, it, though? Was, How did your parents handle it? Okay, so you're young, you're a kid, you're scared of, dying yeah. from, scared of dying from an electric fence, which is not reasonable, but it's there and it's terrifying right. to you. What did they do? Right. Um, well, I, was, I also was pretty much in therapy from, from a very early age. Um, you know, I mean, some of it was just trying to, you know, take me near these places, you know, to say... There's really nothing to be afraid of, you know, not, not necessarily like walking up to an electric fence or anything, yeah. but, you know, to drive by one and say, look, everything's fine. Um, nothing's happened to you. Um, and you, the same thing with, with therapy, to be able to talk about those things in therapy with, um, you know, a qualified child psychologist. Um, and, you know, I mean, I think also to be able to, to talk and write about these things, what, whatever the fears were, to be able to journal about those things as well. Um, Did your fears you know, render you helpless and hopeless and, and really not able to, to go to school, to uh, do the things that you had to do? I mean, I mean, I know they were always there, not necessarily in the background, but in the foreground. But did they, these irrational fears render you helpless? I mean, obviously, not, no, no, okay. yeah, def- definitely not, not at that age. I mean, it, you know, it caused a certain amount of distress, but, but um, no, I, I was able to, to carry on a regular routine, go to school, um, have play dates, um, everything that a, that a, a child would do. Um, but yeah, I mean, it certainly on the off hours caused, caused a great amount of, of distress and stress. Sometimes it goes away. I was, you know, thinking about you and your book. And uh, when I was six or seven, I, I had, I guess this could have been diagnosed as OCD, I'm not sure, but had this, this irrational fear of thunderstorms and that I was going to, you know, suddenly a thunderstorm would appear and I'd be struck by lightning. So on a be- perfectly beautiful days, I wouldn't go out and I would stay in the house and it didn't last too long, but I had a couple of friends who tormented me and, and would say, you know, we're talking about five and six years old. Oh, it looks like it's going to, we're going to have a thunderstorm today when yeah. of course we weren't. <laughs> and then I would go tearing into the house, but it sort of dis- it did dissipate after, you know, let's say a few months. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, yeah. That's that's definitely true. That with, with OCD, it it can be triggered by uh, a certain event, a certain trauma, and then you know work. It's you know it, you may ultimately come out of it, but you know for many, it is it is a lifetime struggle, and it is something that you have to learn compensation and coping techniques for uh, how to how to deal with. So you were also diagnosed with learning disabilities. How did that fit into the OCD? Um, so 
you know, certainly not to give up too much of the book, but um, uh, I definitely sensed that there was something different about me and having two mental health professional parents, um, it always seemed to me that they were uh, searching for something that was wrong rather than focusing on um, on what I did well. So that that definitely made me nervous. That made me worry a lot more and focus on um, why, you know, why are they, why do they feel this way? What's wrong with me? Um, so, yeah, I think that that definitely factored into um, earlier symptoms of, of OCD. You're a writer, you're an activist, you describe yourself as a worker bee. Uh, so on some level, the OCD must, I would assume, have a positive effect in terms of propelling you to accomplish things and be successful and yes. the tension it creates. Yes. Talk to us about that. Yeah, definitely. Um, I mean, it certainly helps me in my work and being detail-oriented to a fault. <laughs> um, so uh, that, that definitely um, has helped me in my career. And, um, you know, certainly in, in continuing to strive for, um, for success um, and, and getting bored with, with the day-to-day job, um, always looking for other opportunities to, um, to, to work in film and to write and um, to be an activist and... Um, just really, you know, just have a lot of passions. And I think that certainly that, um, that the OCD for a positive um, has impacted that, um, that continue, continuously driving me and not, not being able to let down. <laughs> and maybe we should talk about OCD as many, uh, I'll call them mental uh, disorders, are on a continuum. So one can have a sort of kind of personality that hooks into that OCD, but not necessarily a full-blown obsessive-compulsive disorder diagnosis, sure. right? Um, and, yes. Yeah. And so would you put yourself in the middle, or well, you went into therapy at a young age, I assume not the minute you came out of the womb, but pretty <laughs> close to that, yeah. as you describe it. Um, yeah. yeah. So it's, it's, it is on a continuum. Yes. Um, yeah. I mean, I, I think I would. I would put myself in the middle. I, I mean, there there have been times where I I was in a particularly uh, crisis period where it did really hinder my ability to to carry on a a day to day routine. But um, but overall, um, it's it, it doesn't really impact me that much. Um, I mean, certainly, certainly most of my colleagues until I, until I wrote this book had no idea <laughs> that there was, that there was anything that, um, that I struggled with. Well, now you've exposed yourself and everybody knows, the yeah. world knows. <laughs> yeah, and after this show, which is an internet show that goes around the world, really everybody's going to know about it. So, um, yeah. yeah, you've decided to go Go all the way, I guess. Oh, no, we're talking about yeah, work. Yeah, I made my peace with that. Yeah, good. <laughs> We've been talking about um, more your work and what you do, but what about relationships? How does it impact your relationships, not yeah. just with your parents, but with other people, with 
lovers, boyfriends, you know, uh, girlfriends, whomever, because it, it obviously has some kind of a, they have some kind of a reaction to your behavior. Yeah, um, intimacy is is very challenging for me. Um, the my my main trigger for um, for OCD is um, fear of contamination. So, <laughs> obviously, being intimate, touching that that is um, that is challenging for me, especially with someone who I don't know well. Um, but it's it's interesting. On the other side, I'm a, I'm a very you know, in terms of with friends and with family, um, pets, you know, I'm a very uh, affectionate person, um, a very loving person, but in terms of actually letting my guard down and being intimate with someone, that, that has always been a real challenge for me. When you say challenge, can you describe that? When you, cause you're, uh, <laughs> what does that mean? Because you say, my family, the dog, I can get close to. Um, and, right, but what, right. Intimacy right. An is intimate, some, intimate relationship with, um, uh, with, uh, with a boyfriend. <laughs> that, that, is, that is challenging for me. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I, pretty much... Anything, uh, you know, kissing, kissing, um, touching, become, intercourse, kissing, yeah. touching, becoming comfortable, um, being intimate, uh, you know, cuddling, something like that is okay, but but it really takes me a while to get to that point where I where I feel comfortable. How do you do that? For because I'm I'm thinking about people who are reading your book, listening to your story. They're thinking mm, that mm, I kind of suffer from some of those kinds of you know, feelings or behaviors, how do you do that? Like you meet somebody and you want to be intimate with them, but as you say, you're really reluctant to do it because it's too scary or it doesn't feel good. So how do you meet that challenge? What do you do? Well, I think you have to become friends with that person first and, and really get to know them on, on, on a emotionally and intellectually intimate level first before I can actually... Um, become physically intimate with them. Um, and that's, you know, certainly in the, the online dating world, that is not the easiest thing because <laughs> that's, that's not something that guys are <laughs> necessarily into. They, you know, want a, a quick fix, so, so to speak. So, um, so it, it is definitely challenging. You know, I certainly um, have a lot of guy friends and just kind of wait to see how, how things go. Um, uh, and hopefully it develops into something more um, because I can trust them on a more um, emotionally and intellectually intimate level, and then that can lead to physical intimacy. Well, now, after today and after, and your, after your book gets out there, uh, everybody's going to know Jen Epstein, you know, don't touch her until you get to know her. But <laughs> it's... Uh, before, which is in the very recent past, um, it, it had a. I, I'm really curious as to how you have you've been able to overcome that, been able to have intimate relationships. I mean, are you sta- scared of being really physically contaminated? You talk about drinking the the water in in Costa Rica, for instance. Um, yes, which actually has some validity. I mean. <laughs> Uh, in yes. terms of being contaminated, <laughs> having been there, um, but yeah. So, what 
what's the feeling? It, terrifying or that you really are going to be contaminated, that this person, if they touch you or if they get too close to you, that it, it's a really scary feeling? Yes, yeah. Oh, it, it definitely is. And, I mean, it's not even just a fear of them of of them contaminating me, it's a fear of me contaminating them, which is also very common with uh, with that particular tri- um, uh, obsession obsession and compulsion with um, with my my form of OCD. Um, you you definitely have a fear of of hurting others as well as them hurting you. Um, so it is <laughs> it is definitely challenging um, and. Uh, yeah, I mean it's uh, again it's it's just something where I have to get to know them and feel comfortable with them um and you know be able to explain the situation to them and and see see what their reaction is to it as well. Um, that was my next question and, because I think when people yeah. have a condition or a chronic even a physical chronic illness or mental illness or or whatever it is um like when to tell the person you meet somebody okay this is something that I struggle with because you don't really know the person and you don't know whether you necessarily even want to continue a relationship which has nothing to do with or may not have anything to do with OCD. So at what point, um, hello, I'm Jen, and then this is who I am, and you talk about it, or you just take your time? Yeah, no, I would say that I take my time. Um, I, I mean, again, I want to normalize things as much as possible. What? Oh, what do you do for a living? Where do you... Where do you uh, where did you grow up? You know, all all of the small talk. Certainly, I don't just jump into and hey, don't touch me, <laughs> because uh, that's 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 going to be a deal breaker. Yeah. Um, but but yeah, I mean, certainly for the first first couple of meetings, first couple of dates, um, just just very casual, getting to know the person um, uh, on a more on a less substantive level. Um, just small talk. What's the worst experience you've had? Uh, well, <laughs> I would say that the worst experience I've had, and this was also related to fear of contamination, was being hospitalized for for 48 hours, um, which is uh, something that I detail in the book. Um, and just uh, what it's like to, <laughs> to have a paralyzing fear of contamination and be in a... <laughs> in an environment where you're surrounded by contamination um, or illness or um, uh, medical waste. <laughs> um, so, yeah, that was, that was really terrifying for me. And on some level, part of it is realistic. As you say, you're in a hospital. You're, I mean, that's where germs reside, and there you are for 48 hours. So obviously coupled with what your issue is, um, that's not an easy place to be. But you survived it. Right. Yes. Yes. <laughs> uh, yes, I, I, I definitely did survive it. Um, it was, uh, and, you know, even for, for several months afterwards, but I was also dealing with um, developing a chronic medical condition with kidney stones that I've, that I've been um, uh trying to cope with for, for the and make changes to my lifestyle for 
the last three years. Um, so beyond just being, you know, scared about having this traumatic experience that really hit me out of nowhere, um, there were no there were no symptoms at all. It just one day I just <laughs> was was wailing on the floor um, in pain. But uh, so yeah, so be, it, it took it took several months for me to really get past that trauma and this fear that I was going to have to go back to the hospital. If um, it, so, to talk about a compulsion, um, one of the and I, I talk about this in in that chapter is. Um, a, a fear of, of, of getting a fever because if you get a fever over a certain temperature, then they, they won't release you from the hospital. You have to be fever-free for, for 24 hours. And um, even after I got out of the hospital, I would compulsively check my temperature. Anytime it went over 99.5, I was, I was just absolutely petrified that I was, that I was going to have to go back to the ER, that, I was, that this whole vicious cycle was going to start all over again. You know, and you mentioned the compulsion and a fear, obviously, yeah. you know, checking to make sure yeah. what your temperature is. And maybe we didn't make the distinction between what the obsession is and the compulsion. So, yes. yeah, we should, probably should have done that uh, earlier. But the obsession, <laughs> is, the obsession is different than the compulsion. So what's the right. difference? right. Yeah. So the obsession is the, you know, this persistent, uncontrollable thought or impulse, intrusive, unwanted um, feelings that, that you just really, that interfere with normal life. Um, and, you know, the compulsion is a behavior that you do to try and relieve that distress. Um, uh, but it's, but it's temporary and it just, it, it really just exasperates things more. So it's, it's, uh, it is definitely not something that will get you out of that, of that state. Um, you know, you really just kind of have to do, um, thought stopping techniques and just say, everything's fine. Everything's fine. And you know, what's the worst that could happen? Okay. So, so maybe you do have to, um, go back to the hospital. You survived it once, you can survive it again. I mean, that's the kind of, that's what you, <laughs> that's what you should <laughs> rationally be telling yourself. But, um, but the compulsion of, of, act, of engaging in that behavior of, um, of, of taking the temperature, um, it, you know, for, for someone with OCD, they think that this <laughs> is going to be helpful, but it really isn't. It's sort of like, I think, one of the common things that most of us have heard about, you know, compulsive um, hand washing, for instance, you know, fear of yes. like constantly washing your hands, even if there isn't a need to. Uh, and, and that would be an example of the compulsion. You know, as I'm listening to you, it's a very enervating, the whole process, the behavior, the, first of all, obsessing, and then this behavior, the, the compulsion to do whatever you have to do to think to alleviate, or you think it's going to alleviate, alleviate the um, the obsession, is enervating. It takes up a lot of energy. I doesn't it? Yes. Exhausting. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> it, it it definitely can be exhausting. I mean, certainly for some people, um, it it, it uh, for some people who suffer who struggle with OCD, it can be quite debilitating. Um, where they where they can't even work. Um, and I I mean I have gone through 
crisis periods like that where I basically couldn't get out the where getting to work was was a struggle. <laughs> um, getting out of bed was a struggle. Um, so yeah, it it absolutely can be very time consuming. I mean, even for for someone who's not in in a crisis situation, it can take generally the one of the diagnostic criteria is that you uh, that these behaviors can take up to an hour a day, usually more. So an hour a day out of your life. I mean, <laughs> thinking about how busy people are, especially in today's climate, that's <laughs> that's that's a lot of time. And if it's and if that's that's the minimum, then um, it really can be disruptive to someone's life. Style. I've seen people walking down the street who have to, you know, have to uh, step on every uh, crack in the in the in the sidewalk, and that's that's a an, a uh, symptom or an example of OCD. So, in order yeah. to get from one yeah. place to the next, and if they haven't felt like they've stepped on every crack, they I've seen them you walk back and and do it again and make sure that you've covered all your bases. So, I mean, that's an uh, that's an example um, of the energy it takes and the time it takes when you are suffering from OCD. Uh, what about yes, friends? Ab- what absolutely. About, yeah, like we only have a couple minutes. We have actually three minutes left. We want to be <laughs> okay. three minutes. So uh, your friends, do, uh, do you hang out with people who have OCD or not? Or are there actually are there any groups that, you know, like uh, groups that we have for different kinds of addictions um, overweight, gambling, those kinds of things? Yeah, I've actually never looked into joining um, a support group, but um, one of the reasons why this book came to fruition was through a writer's group. Um, and so I, I definitely have um, a support network um, of people, my, my, my friends and my colleagues, my activist friends. Um, yeah, I have a very, very healthy um, social life. Um, and, and and a lot of different friends. Um, the the um, yeah OCD definitely doesn't hinder that for me today. Um, looking back at my earlier years, even in my twenties, but certainly in my childhood, um, both having having learning disabilities and um, and and at the time, you know, not being diagnosed with OCD until much later, but but you know, certainly signs of of an extreme anxiety disorder. Um, it definitely hindered uh, friendship then, um, but but yeah, today I have a very very healthy social life. So less so today than it was then, and there's probably obviously more. And besides your book, there's a lot of information that people can get on the net, um, so that you're not sort of in the dark about your what's happening to you. Uh, you have there there are outlets, I guess, and. Um, now we have a minute left, so I want to mention your book. Again, because we want our <laughs> listeners to go out and get Jen's book. Jen Epstein is the author. She's a writer, and she's also an activist. Don't get too excited. It's just about a pair of shoes and other laments from my life. Jen, is there a website that we can go to for more information about the book and you? Um, so you can order the book on IndieBound.org or BarnesandNoble.com. Um, I have a... Uh, a Facebook account, um, Don't Get Too Excited Book. Um, you can find that on Facebook. Um, I have a Twitter account at DGTE. Um, I have an Instagram account also at DGTE. 
um, and uh, website is in progress. So Great, and uh, uh, there's going to be another place tuned. for it. <laughs> Good, stay tuned. Uh, uh, yeah. I have a new website, which is going to be launched December 1st, and you'll be up Fantastic. there, and your book will be up there in a description of the book, so people can also refer to that and, and then um, buy your book. But thanks for being on the show today. Thank you so much, Catherine. Yep. It was an Great absolute t- pleasure. Great. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show. Are you or someone you know interested in attending college? With both college tuition and college enrollment up 60% since 2002, there is a lot of competition, and careful planning needs to be a part of the process. Tune in to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation, hosted by Elizabeth Heaton and featuring a team of college coach experts. We'll bring you the tips, techniques, and know-how to navigate the road to college and do so the smart way. Listen live every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. What if there was a radio show that could demonstrate how we can cut your taxes in half without diminishing needed government services? One that could explain how to create tens of millions of jobs at no cost to taxpayers, as well as fantastic yet easily affordable health care. Side effects include cutting crime rates nationwide, providing better education for our children, international peace and harmony, and protecting your private personal data from government intrusion. Tune in to Libertarians Working for you with Arvind Vora, Tuesdays at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific Time on Voice America Variety. News. Opinion. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. Joining me today is Matthew Loon, award-winning Pixar artist and storyteller. The Best Story Wins is the title of his book, How to Leverage Hollywood Storytelling in Business and Beyond. In business, attention is the new currency. How can companies compete when they only have a sliver of a second to move in? The secret is to hook them with a great story. Matthew translates two and a half decades of successful storytelling techniques woven through his 10 blockbuster Pixar films into fresh insights that help business minds reach audiences, captivate customers, and grow their businesses. He has over 25 years experience at Pixar Animation Studios with story credits including the Toy Story and Monsters, Inc., franchises Finding Nemo, UP, Cars, and Ratatouille. E, welcome to the show. Nice to have you on, Matthew. Thank you. It's my pleasure. Well, in your book, you talk about, you write about, actually, all people crave stories, and I definitely think that's true. So let's just start with what, why do we crave stories? What makes stories so exciting? Well, or so know, enticing as well. Yeah. Sure, sure. You know, I think there's something really um, powerful about storytelling. This is why we have, um, whether we've been sitting around a fire uh, telling or hearing a story for thousands of years, 
Uh, we really crave stories. And I think the reason why is because uh, stories are so memorable. You know, when we share uh, just information with one another, it seems to just kind of go in one ear and out the other. But when it's wrapped around a story, uh, we, we just can't stop uh, thinking about it. And then also stories are so impactful. We know, uh, like a great Pixar film, uh, stories can make us cry. They can make us laugh. And most importantly, they can uh, move us to action. They can make us change the way we think. And, and then the last thing is stories are personal. You know, when, uh, when uh, we're sharing information with one another, it's easy to forget it. But as soon as someone shares a story, not only do they remember it, not only does it impact them, but we make a personal connection with the listener. And I think this is why storytelling uh, continues to be um, one of the most powerful tools in entertainment and business. You know, in social work, we call it, we call it putting a face on it. We can, you know, mm. describe we can describe behaviors, we can describe diagnoses, all those kinds of things. But when you put a face on it, when you give an example, for yeah. instance, of what you're talking about in terms of behavior, a person, a family, an individual, then it all begins to make sense. Which is, I think, what Absolutely. you're talking about, and and you draw people in, especially today, which you've mentioned or which I mentioned, I think, just in in the opening. Um, describing your book, um, our attention span is what do you, how do you, what did you say? Six seconds? I don't know, but not very much. It's a, they, they say that the statistic is it's about eight seconds, um, that people have their attention span before they, they shut you off, they drift off, they, they look for something else to entertain them. So it is about eight seconds. If, so if you're in business, which you started to talk about or started to tell us about, you really got to hook them in in the, those first eight seconds. Otherwise, they're gone, right? They don't want to hear blah, 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 blah about a product or whatever something's, you know, whatever you're trying to sell. Yep. You have to hook them in with the story. So how do you do that? Well, you know, um, from my experience with uh, hooking people in when at the very beginning of a film, or hooking people when they're driving their car and they see a billboard for a movie I've worked on, or um, if there's a trailer for a movie. I know that I only have eight seconds to entice people uh, to say, hey, uh, what I have to share with you in this movie is going to be worth your time. And I've really broken it down to there's, there's four things that hook us. Either something unusual something unexpected or something that lands you in a conflict or an action. So let me give you an example here. Um, whenever I'm pitching an idea for a film or I'm helping a company pitch an idea for a, a product or service, when you're coming up with something unusual, you take the ordinary world um, of that, that topic and you share how it could be extraordinary. So, for example, the, the movie Incredibles 2 came out um, a couple of months ago. And for the first film, The Incredibles, um, our hook was, what if superheroes were banned from saving people? So everybody knows superheroes save people. That's the ordinary world. The hook is, what if they were banned from saving people? And so if you go through almost all of the Pixar films, you will see there's a hook like this. Uh, what if a monster didn't want to scare kids? Um, what if a rat wanted to be a French chef? 
And that one, for ratatouille, that one goes to the second type of hook that I use a lot, which is unexpected shock value. It's very unexpected to um, think, wow, a rat that wants to cook. So we know that shock value, something unexpected, is always a great hook. It catches our attention. And then the last two, landing people in a conflict or action, the way I always explain this is it's kind of like when you're flipping through channels on your TV, for whoever still does that, and um, you stop at a certain channel because there's a car chase or two people are having a very intense conversation. That's landing people into an action or conflict. And this, this, these four types of hooks you can use, we see the best people in business, the best teachers um, use this all the time. You know, it makes me think of Steve Jobs when he pitched the iPod. His pitch was, what if you could have a thousand songs in your pocket? And at the time, the ordinary world was, we all had a Walkman, cassette tapes, maybe 16 songs. And he's saying, what if you could have a thousand songs in your pocket? So really with the hook, you want to keep it under eight seconds with something unusual, unexpected, or lands you in an action or conflict. And it entices you to say, I want to know more. And then when you want to know more and you have been hooked in or enticed, it go kind of, as you've described it, it goes on from there. Like if you have yeah. your content, as you say, sort of in, embedded in another story or embedded in the story, people's right. information uh, or retain information, like 5% jumps to yeah. 65%. Is that is that the statistic? Yeah, you know, it's, it's when people, when you share information with people, whether it's a teacher in a classroom sharing facts and figures or a business person sharing statistics and data. Um, really, after 10 minutes after you share that information, people will only retain about 5% of it. It's kind of depressing. Now, if you add in a story that's memorable, impactful, and personal around that information, you know, in, in a metaphor, then you end up giving yourself a 22 time better chance, 22 times better that people are going to remember the information. So it is, it's proven that um, using a story, a metaphor, visual storytelling as well, people are going to retain information. It's going to make more of an impact on them. Don't you think, uh, I'm thinking of the TED Talks, isn't that how, it, what, they're 20 minutes long? Absolutely. And Absolutely. As yeah, that's what they do. I mean, a lot of information, yep. but there's always a story or stories, and you do remember yep. it. It's exactly what you're saying. And, um, you know, if you watch the best um, TED Talks out there, you will see that they will always start with something unusual, the ordinary world, and they have an idea of how it could be extraordinary, something unexpected, some sort of shock value that pulls you in, or they will land you in a conflict or an action. For example, in the beginning of Ariana Huffington's book, Thrive, she starts off the beginning of her book with such a great hook, which is, you know, on the morning of, you know, April 1996 or something, I woke up in a puddle of blood on my office floor. And you're like, what? And she continues to say, because I had passed out from exhaustion and 
when I collapsed, my head, my head hit the side of my table, my office table. It's like, what a great hook. And, you know, when I gave my TED talk, um, they, they, they suggest you use as few slides as possible, as few words on each slide as possible and really hook people in and, and keep them in with the stories that you weave. And, and that works. is what works. Yeah. How many PowerPoint presentations have oh, we gosh. seen? And you, you know, by the time you leave the meeting, you can't remember any of it. Or I as know. you say, maybe 5%, but maybe not even 5%, or you're half asleep. So it, we know that doesn't know. work because you also talked about it. It's a science. You're saying science backs this. They've Absolutely. tested this, yeah, this process And out. you know, the, the, the very next thing people want is after you hook them in with your, your pitch, your presentation, um, or the beginning of your film, the very next thing people want to know, and this is what I always try to work into the films, the very next thing is how is this story or this pitch or this presentation or this thing that you want to sell me, how is it going to change my life? And that is the next thing I'm always focusing on in a great story is I want to transform the audience. I want to get them from being kind of a non-believer of, of a product or a way of thinking to being a believer. And the best way to be able to change people's minds um, is by putting them in the shoes of a character that goes through a transformation and um, has a positive or negative um, outcome. And that's what stories are all about. When you think about it, there's always a hero on a journey that has a goal that ends up going through a change. And that's the beauty of storytelling is that when we hear, read, watch stories with a character changing, it makes us look at our own life and go, wow, um, my life could be changed if I tried that or thought differently. Talk to us about well, some kind of boring product. The most you don't have to say. <laughs> we don't sure. want to brand well, somebody's product. Yeah, that you make that exciting. You get the hook. You tell the story, and we're talking about some widget that mm, is not that interesting. Exactly. How do you do that? Yeah. Well, you know what? <clears throat> what I always do is, you know, even if it's like a, a data analytics company, right? There's, mm-hmm. it's you can even take um, the what may seem like the driest uh, piece of information and you can weave a story around it. What I do is I always think about what is at the heart of that product? What is at the heart of that service or idea? What what do you want it to um, bring to people's life? Is it going to help people connect more authentically with their customers and clients? Is it going to inspire teamwork or innovation? And then what I always do is then I think to myself, when is a time in my life where I experienced innovation or teamwork, you know? Um, and, and then I think of a story that not, is not necessarily from a, a, a business experience I had, but maybe something that happened to me when I was 12 when I learned about teamwork or something that happened to me when um, I, I had my kids, my first child, that taught me about, um, you know, thinking outside the box. And those, those stories, we use those as metaphors. 
that have the same theme as the theme of your product. And that is what I'm always um, trying to do when I come in to work with companies on um, their product, their service, or idea. I'm trying to get to the heart of what is the theme. People will call that the mission statement. And how can I come up with stories that have similar themes to be able to make the... um, the heart of the product more memorable and personal and impactful. So and we, you personalize it. Personalize it. Absolutely. Right? You, you personalize you wanna, the You want to put a face. You want to put a face on that that item. You know, this is what um, this is what Steve Jobs was so brilliant at, and and uh, you know, one of the extra bonuses of working at Pixar for so long was working with Steve and seeing how he would use stories. Uh, to be able to explain more complicated or dry information, I'll give you. I'll give you one example. I think about when Toy Story came out in 1995, and it was the uh, highest-grossing movie all around the world, um, live action or animated. It was the highest-grossing movie, and I remember our very next meeting that we had with Steve um, at at Pixar. Everybody wanted to know what we're going to do next. What are we going to do next at Pixar? Are we going to make uh, TV shows? Are we going to make a live action movie? Are we going to make video games? Everybody had all these questions. And Steve, you know, he could have broken out a chart, a whiteboard, and started explaining to everybody um, how it's not great to, to over leverage yourself right after you make your first product. But instead, he's, he shared a story. And he shared a story of a sandwich shop that um, he used to eat at when he was working at Apple before he was fired and how the sandwiches were so great at this one sandwich shop in Silicon Valley that was run by, um, a, uh, a woman and a man, they were married and they just had this one little sandwich shop and the sandwiches were so good that people would wait around the block for about 30 minutes to get their sandwich and gobble it down. And the sandwich shop had only been open a short time and they were having a lot of success and so they decided to rent out the two buildings next to them and open up a bakery and a coffee shop and continue to run it all by themselves. And Steve came in to get a sandwich one day, and it didn't taste good. He tried the baked goods, mediocre. Tried the coffee, not so great. And he just stopped going. And a couple months later, he drove by the... Uh, the three buildings and they were all gone Mm. and see what Steve was doing was he was communicating the theme of over leveraging in a memorable, impactful and personal way through a story and the best business leaders out there and the best filmmakers out there, they know that if you end up putting together kind of a Rolodex in your head of different stories that have different themes you can pull these out at any time to be able to drive a point home. And like you said, to be able to put a face to it, you know, that's a, I mean, that's a great example, Matthew. What about sometimes you, cause you mentioned earlier trailers and making the trailer interesting and tell a story about a film and that's a hook. 
Sometimes, yeah. though, the trailers, I feel, put in the best, let's say, examples of what's happening <laughs> in the movie, and I'm disappointed. I've seen the trailer. Now I don't have to see the movie. Or if I do see the movie, I'm like, hmm, this is not as interesting as the trailer yeah. was. That's an yeah, issue. I know. It is, that is a tricky thing. I won't lie. I am that guy when I'm going to the movies um, that I usually kind of plug my ears and avert my eyes when trailers are coming up because I feel they give out too much information. And I think you want just enough to be able to hook people. You don't want to condense your whole film into a trailer. Um, that's just my point of view. But, you know, the Toy Story 4 trailer that just came out, I think it's there's two of them you can check them out on uh you know on youtube and they do just enough to entice you to get you excited without sharing with you what is going to happen in the story at all it's still going to be a complete surprise but one of them is unusual and another one kind of lands you right into a conflict action moment that's what I think you want for a trailer. It's just enough to entice you. And another great one is for the, uh, the Good Dinosaur movie that we put out a couple years ago. And the very beginning of the film is you see dinosaurs thousands of years ago eating in the marshes. And then all of a sudden you cut to a meteor coming towards the earth. And it says, what if... And then you see the meteor zoom past the dinosaurs and not crash on earth and says, if the meteor never hit Earth, dot, dot, dot. And that's the way the, the, the hook for that trailer begins. And it makes you think to yourself, wait a minute, what would have happened? And then the very next thing you do is you meet your main character and what they want. And it's just enough to entice you. But I agree there's some companies that they, I think they doubt their own story, and they... Um, almost belittle the audience by saying, we don't think that, you know, we're doing good enough job and that you can't figure it out. So we're just going to explain it to you all in our trailer. So I think that's kind of what's going on. So it's a science and this process yes. is, a, yeah, but it's also an art. I mean, it re, it's both, oh, yeah. right? Yeah. So, and you obviously have that talent. How did you get into this initially? How did you, did, did your, I guess, did your expertise evolve or you just, in the beginning, you were like Steve Jobs, you just did it? Well, you know what? I think when, when we're all kids, you know, kindergarten, first grade, we are all writers, we're all artists, we're all actors and actresses and singers and as we get older, all of those insecurities and fears start to set in. And for me, I actually had someone in my life that uh, told me it's okay to keep being creative and playful. And that was my dad. And my dad, his, um, his job, his entire life, has been owning and running a, our family toy store, Jeffrey's Toys, in San Francisco. And before he ran it, my grandfather, and before my grandfather, my great-grandparents. And But my dad, my dad's dream has always been to be a Disney animator. And so when I was a little kid in kindergarten, and he saw me draw, he thought to himself, you are the chosen one. This is what you're going to do. You're going to live my dream 
and you're going to be a Disney animator. So my dad encouraged me, inspired me, and gave me all of the right tools to keep building on that little bit of a talent I had. And, and then I would say I was surrounded by a lot of really great storytellers, um, people that, um, you know, we all have our grandparents that tell like the same 10 stories over and over again. Well, that was what uh, my family did, and it, it just rubbed off on me. And when I had a chance to actually get my own camera in high school, I started making my own films, which led to me um, at 19 years old uh, getting my first job in the entertainment business, which was uh, working as an animator on The Simpsons. And then everything just kind of, I just kept wanting to learn more and more about storytelling and art and animation, and I, I haven't stopped, you know, so... That is a great story. (laughs) Yeah, that's a great story because, as you say, very often parents don't push their kids in that direction when it comes to storytelling and art and theater and film. Uh, You know, they want you to be a dentist or something like that. But I mean, there's nothing wrong with dentists. Yeah. But uh, yeah. Yeah. So you lived your father's, or you are living, I guess, your father's dream. Yes. Yes. I'm kind of living. You know. The interesting thing is that I, I made it my own. I, when I was working uh, as an animator on The Simpsons and an animator on Toy Story, that's when I uh, got to discover the story process. I got to meet the writers and the storyboard artists. And, and that's when I really realized that the thing I've always loved about movies is, is the story part, the big picture. Uh, my dad, he has always loved the, the special effects and the details and for me, it's always been um, uh, the part that's always excited me is the big picture, the hero on the journey. And so during those times when I would be animating at these companies, um, I would end up uh, wandering into the story room after work on the weekends. And then eventually they saw, okay, this guy, he really wants to do story. And um, I got brought in on Toy Story 2. Um, as a part of the story team, and then for the next ten films and specials and TV shows and stuff. So, very, it's, uh, it's awesome. exciting, and 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 somebody, uh, you know, the you have the the talent, I guess, and the ability, and to be able to work, and it's your passion, which is really yeah. great. Obviously, we have one minute left, one and a half minutes oh. left. So, okay, the be- I want to, and I know you're by the side of the road, uh, as you said in the beginning. <laughs> you got to get going, catch a flight. Uh, but the title of uh, Matthew's book, Matthew Loon: The Best Story Wins: How to Leverage Hollywood Storytelling in Business and Beyond. And I'm assuming we can buy it. At online bookstores yeah. everywhere you, yeah. you, you you can find it on amazon you can find it on my website and i just want to say you know that there is a lot of books out there for people in film and entertainment about storytelling and i think it's it's been a long time um you know that people have been waiting for a book on storytelling for people in business people in nonprofit, people in education written by somebody who actually works on films so this is kind of my passion that um, I'm hoping is going to inspire people to be better storytellers. Matthew, the website is Matthew, and I'm going to spell it, L-U-H-N-Story.com? Yep. 
So, you know, it's either Lund or Loon. You can go either way, but it's MatthewLundStory.com. Great. Thanks so much for being on the show today. My pleasure. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show. (laughs) 